Welcome to the Artists and Emotions podcast. Before we get started, everybody, I just want you to know that the podcast is no longer just on Spotify. We are up on Apple Podcasts. So if you are listening to this podcast and you're enjoying it, please do me a favor and go there, give us a five-star rating, and give us a review. Tell us what we can do better. But now, on to the episode. So I'm very excited about this episode because the person I have with me today, in real time, in all honesty, I haven't known for that long, but her personality, her work ethic, and basically how she treats everybody around her, I appreciate whole, wholeheartedly. This is Sarah Massey. And Sarah, her accolades and her talent can speak for herself. She is an actress, she is a director of photography, she is an editor, she is a writer. I don't know, is there anything else I'm missing? (laughs) (laughs) First off, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate this. But yeah, um, man, I, I get asked a lot, like, what side of the camera do you like to be on the most? Like, what is your favorite role? And I know, like, people always advise, like, you gotta, you gotta, find your niche. You got to find that one thing that, you know, you want to focus on. But I genuinely love so many aspects of filmmaking. I love being in front of the camera and I love just as much and maybe a little bit more being behind the camera. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. (laughs) Uh, And for for anybody who's listening, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll get more into this after we sort of break down you a little bit. But I've actually had the chance to see you work both sides of the camera. That's right. And I've had a chance to work with you both of those times, which was, it was great. But I want to start out here with what is your story, Sarah? Like, how did you find your love of acting and film or theater? And how did you get to where you are today? It's been a very long journey for me. Um, I discovered in my childhood that I loved cameras. It all started when um, my parents gave me my very own little pocket Canon PowerShot. I think it was A1000 for my birthday. Um, It's like one of those cute little like 2000 silver cameras. And I was so excited when I found out that this camera had a video record button. I was like, oh my gosh, a whole new world has opened to me. So I was 11 years old and I was running around the house. I was making up little TV shows and TED Talks. I was filming myself playing different characters. Oh my gosh, I was never without that camera. I carried it around everywhere. Um, But I didn't have any idea, uh, concept at the time of pursuing a career in film. Um, For me, it was just a fun hobby. I loved photography. My mom's a photographer, so um, I spent a lot of time running around taking pictures. We traveled a lot, and I loved recording everything with my camera. Um, My dad liked to make uh, home videos, and so he would play around on editing software. He had a Sony Vegas uh, editing software. Um, (laughs) So when I was 12... um, I wanted to get into editing, um, just some fun little home videos of my own. And so my dad sat me down and gave me my first lesson in editing. Um, I was a really big fan of history documentaries at the time, uh, travel documentaries, history documentaries. And I loved to travel um, all up and down the East Coast to various like American Revolution, like historical sites, that kind of thing. So I decided that I wanted at the age of 12, to film my own little history documentary. Uh, So I wrote the script myself. My mom and I were going to the uh, Virginia Historic Triangle, which is Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. So I wrote my own little script, and 12 years old, uh, and I was kind of the star of it, so my mom would help film me, and I would memorize my little script, and I'd be like, the building behind me, and I would give my little historical fun facts. And so, yeah, that was my summer project. I came home and I edited like a little six minute docu-short. 
And that's where it all began. So yeah, um, by the time I was 14, I definitely knew I wanted to get into acting. Um, so I lived in Aiken, South Carolina at the time, and they have a lovely uh, little tiny volunteer community theater called the Aiken Community Theater. And they had a youth wing program, um, which was very cool. It was very educational. They had a lot of classes. They would teach you things like stage fighting, dialects, dance. It was so much fun. And I got so caught up in that world. Um, I just loved every aspect of theater. Um, by the time I was 18 um, and graduated high school, I had gotten into video production in my community. Um, I wanted to honor the impact that the theater youth wing program had had on me and a lot of my friends. So I ended up deciding to make a docu-short about the impact it was having on the community. Um, I called it Stage Door to the World. And it's about 20 minutes long. And I interviewed, gosh, maybe 20 plus people. Uh, it took me about a year to complete. I actually filmed behind the scenes and actual performances of multiple different shows, followed people along their journey, and it was so much fun. Uh, I definitely, from an early age, felt drawn to the documentary format, um, even though I do love uh, storytelling, narrative filmmaking. Um, I do have a special place in my heart for documentary filmmaking. So yeah, um, Fast forward a couple years, I got a lot of experience in a plethora of different styles, music videos, a lot of uh, social media marketing videos for local businesses. Um, I did some other documentary content. I made a short film with my friends, which was a whole experience. I think that was also when I was 18. I remember uh, somebody, uh, somebody's dad taught me how to do storyboards. I didn't know how to do storyboards. It was so cute. Um, <laughs> I think all of the dialogue for that entire short film was MOS with my camcorder. <laughs> it was fun. It was a fun experience. I did not know what I was doing, but um, honestly, I love learning on the job, just jumping in and, you know, getting that hands-on experience. Um, but yeah, uh, gosh, it was 2022. Obviously, the pandemic had hit and ended uh, my experience, my time with theater. Um, so the theater, local theaters were closed for a good year or two. Um, and I had been doing a lot of soul searching. Um, the uh, 2020 to 2022, I was really asking myself a lot of questions about what I wanted, uh, what I wanted to focus on, where I saw myself going. And I decided to focus more on video editing. Um, I have a, a weird love for video editing. Um, if anybody has ever tried video editing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is a lot of long hours sitting hunched over a computer while you watch and rewatch and watch again the same video clips over and over ad nauseum. Um, trying every little combination to make the video edit look good. There's color grading, sound mixing, ugh. And you gotta know so many computer programs. I mean, I constantly have people coming out, oh, do you edit on DaVinci? Oh, do you, do you know Premiere Pro? What about Final Cut? Oh, do you do After Effects? Like, the learning curve for editing is so hard. Um, but I don't know, I, I have a special interest in video editing because I love watching a project come together. I feel, being on set is exciting. Uh, there's a lot of activity, a lot of chaos, a lot of socialization. It's awesome. It's a thrill ride. But it's truly in the editing suite that a project comes together. And it's a very special position to be in, to be the person that gets to put it together. You're the first person that gets to see the finished product. And I don't know, it's, it's kind of a slow burn thrill. Um, but there's just something about the satisfaction of, you know, just rearranging some clips and being like, oh my gosh, there it is. That's the final cut. Oh, it looks so good. Like there's something about that that's like really special to me. So in 2022, I decided to uh, pr start promoting myself as a video editor as opposed to 
a full service film producer. And, um, man, I, I was in a place where I really wanted to network. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of connections at the time and I was not in the place that I wanted to be. Um, and I knew I wanted to take things to the next level and I wanted to get more into feature filmmaking, um, and kind of grow towards the Atlanta, uh, film industry. Um, but I live in a, a small city, Augusta, Georgia, where we, we do have a thriving film community. Um, I'm very proud of the work that people have put into the film industry in Augusta, but it, it's, it's still smaller. Um, and, you know, networking is tricky. Uh, and in Augusta, it's all in who you know. You have to build connections. You have to spend a lot of time doing uh, free volunteer work on people's film sets in order to make connections and actually build a business. Um, so I was definitely in a point where I was racking my brain how to, how to get my, my business and my career to the next level. And something I've learned is the importance of networking and just getting outside of your comfort zone, getting outside of the box. Um, I have always kind of struggled with social anxiety a little bit. Uh, for me, it's, you know, it's very nerve wracking to walk into a room full of strangers that you don't know. And, you know, especially in the film industry, there's a lot of competition. Um, often you'll walk into a situation where, you know, people are loudly proclaiming their, their resumes and it's, it's easy to feel small, like, you know, and, uh, so like that's definitely been a journey for me to like work on my self-confidence and the courage to, you know, promote my work. And I don't want to sound egotistical, but like also actually just being able to be like, hey, here's what I've done. Take a look at it, you know. But yeah, it is it is nerve wracking to walk into a room full of people and uh, you don't know anybody. Um, but everything kind of changed for me. Um Gosh, it was fall of 2022, and I had been background for a short film, and it was a, a volunteer thing. I wasn't paid for it, um, but it was, a, it was a really sweet short film that was shot in Warrington, Georgia, called The Magic Ticket, and um, so I was background on that, and I was sat at a table uh, with a filmmaker in Augusta, and it was all by chance um, that the director randomly sat me at this table, but we got to talking and uh, this filmmaker was telling me about uh, a director up in Columbia who had uh, made a movie called Acorn and David Axe. And uh, I kind of, there was a lot going on on set. I kind of was half listening to what he was saying. I was like, oh, this is cool. This is great. Awesome for you. Um, and then I forgot about our conversation. And then three days later, he sends me a text. He's like, oh, well, um, David's actually having a screening for his movie up in Columbia, which was an hour from where I lived. Um, would you like to go? And at first I was like, oh, it's a Saturday. I'm tired. Like, do I really want to drive an hour <laughs> to go see a screening for a movie that I don't even know is good? Like, I don't know. And I don't know anybody there. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. <laughs> drove up there and it was like that, that I did not realize would be a life-changing event for me because, um, I got to meet David. We instantly clicked. Uh, we both have very similar goals and drives in our career. We're both definitely workaholics. <laughs> and, um, so he ended up, we worked together on a couple small projects and he ended up asking me if I would like to help shoot his 2023 feature film, Left One Alive. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have never shot something of that scale. And I was like, I, I need to get better at my cinematography. <laughs> so that's where I met you. That's where it came, uh, uh, our short film, Simon Says. Um, I had connected with a friend of mine, Ryan Avent, who you actually interviewed on your podcast. I did. Um, he, uh, he talks about theater. So we both met at the Aiken Community Theater. So we were 17 years old 
little babies who didn't have any idea what we wanted in life. None whatsoever. <laughs> we were just trying to figure things out, but um, look at us now, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we had reconnected and he was like, you know, I'd love to do uh, some stunt choreography. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to film stunts. Like I, I want to get into action filmmaking. So uh, I wrote a script. This is December of 2022. And it was all purely for me. It started with the goal of practicing to get ready for Left One Alive. I wanted to push myself. I love a challenge. Um, and so I ended up writing a short film called Simon Says. And that's when I was looking for an actor and Cody comes along. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, in the, the one thing I can say about you in terms of a... In terms of a first-time filmmaker, I, I was very, very impressed with how you handled that set. Because coming from, as I've talked about on this podcast before, originally from the state of Maine, which I feel incredibly fortunate that it was the first project I got to do as soon as I got down here. That's and, right. And coming from a state where the industry is basically non-existent, a lot of times sets are not... They're not great. People are passionate and they mean well, but the environments aren't fantastic, unfortunately. But the way that you ran your set, it was it was just a ton of fun. That's the that's the best way I can say it. And you kept the cast and crew fed and catered. And that for me is mm -hmm. like that's I was very happy. Yeah. <laughs> that's all, that's <laughs> no. all I can say. Yeah. When you're working with a, an extremely small budget. So uh, Simon Says was, uh, I think, $1,500 in total. Um, and there was a couple of us who were pitching in, um, which I appreciate the help. Um, because I like it was kind of a last minute idea of mine. And we ended up having a long rehearsal process for the stunts. Um, but I hadn't had a big chance to, you know, save up. But I mean, that's the thing people don't understand is like when you film a short film and you know this, Cody, uh, <laughs> the money quickly adds up. Um, it's <laughs> whew, filmmaking is expensive. Um, but yeah, that's like that's my one of my um, like main thoughts is that when you have people on your set and they're volunteering even if you can't pay them, you've got to at least give them something. And first and foremost, you've got to feed them. You have to respect their time. Um, if And especially like if they're working for free, like we're not talking about uh, rates and overtime and all that good stuff. Like if they're working for free, you got to be really careful that you're not exploiting people. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's at least my my very strong feelings on that matter. I know uh, David Axe has that same philosophy. So it's been really good working with him because he's like, I, I got to pay everybody something. Like even if it's like 20, 50 bucks, like I got to compensate you. I've got to respect your skills, your time, the fact that you are a professional coming on the set. So um, I, I try to do the most that I can do. And sometimes that just means feeding everybody incredibly well. Um, but that is, that is the absolute least I can do, but oh my gosh, the amount of support, we had a pretty decent sized crew. We had, yeah. uh, Terrence Williams from Indie Grip Studio, uh, brought his grip truck and lit the entire project. Um, I also had Chris Martino, um, on two days was, our gaffer and he brought his own lights. We had Joshua Timmerman uh, doing sound, did a fabulous job yeah. with both boom mic and lobs. Um, gosh, we had a, a lot of like volunteers like Kenneth Perkins. Uh, David came down to be my BCAM op, which I will say like, at first I was like, okay, I appreciate the help, but I don't think I really need a BCAM op. So, but I, you know, like, I'm not going to say no. Like, I appreciate the help. But then once I started actually, like, planning out the shots, I quickly realized how much I needed the extra help. So yeah. the slight little challenge to this shoot is that we were filming in a friend's house, and he told me, well, I can let you guys shoot for one day. <laughs> okay, in that one day, I had to shoot six pages of a 10 page script and these six pages were not just 
six pages of dialogue. We had two outdoor dialogue scenes. We had the dining room dialogue scene. And then we had a fight scene that starts in the living room, goes back into the dining room, back into the living room, back into the dining room, and involves knives, guns, a prop bookshelf. Oh my gosh, what were we thinking? Um, Yeah, when I tell you, I literally had a nightmare the night before that shoot. Yeah. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I cannot fail. Everybody's looking at me because like, Obviously, like, I had, I, I had been shooting things since I was 18 professionally, but, um, and I shot a short film, but, like, this was different. This was taking things to a whole new level. Um, and I was, like, I feel like at this point, like, I'm building so many connections in the community, like, really, like, serious filmmakers, serious crew who are looking at me. And here I am trying to direct and DP this short film and it's so ambitious for like somebody of my level. I'm like, I got, I got to do this right. And I just remember showing up on set and for the next 12 hours, I was on like hyper speed. Like I had injured my foot the week before. And I remember I got home the evening after the shoot and my foot was swollen. (laughs) Like, I could barely walk the next day. I was running up and down the stairs. And then, like, oh, my gosh. Like, I was so blessed with cast and crew. Like, I know um, you can speak for yourself in this. Um, I did not hear one peep out of anybody. Like, one complaint whatsoever. I mean, you got, like, pretty banged up. I mean, obviously, it's a fight scene. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I gained massive respect for everybody on stunts uh, during yeah. that shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who may be wondering, yeah, I got I got slammed around quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I got slammed, like, full-on body slammed into the floor <laughs> and into a bookshelf. Luckily, <laughs> luckily, Ryan, Ryan Avent was mm-hmm. also our stunt coordinator, and he was my stunt partner yes. during this. And I... <laughs> it was a great experience. Yeah. I will say, I had more bruises on my body than I think I have my entire life. <laughs> but the way that you ran the set, the way that everybody operated, mm-hmm. like, it was... Yeah. It, it was a great experience across the yeah. board. I feel like and, um, I try to hold myself to a high standard when I'm running a set. And for me, um, like, obviously stunts, like... You know, people are going to get banged up and bruised a bit. I've taken martial arts, so I understand, like, the toll. It's very athletic. Um, but at the same time, like, as a director, I was like, we need crash pads. We, we, I had everybody rehearsing for, like, months before we were shooting. Because I'm like, we need to know what we're doing. When we walk into this, I, I don't want books and guns and knives flying around like what I mean Ryan and I were like we are holding gun safety talks like before every single shoot like we were abiding by basically the Hollywood standards because like obviously the Alec Baldwin thing like you know really for a lot of us David and I like when we work with guns on set it's like this is a serious issue we need to like clear these in front of everybody we need to have safety protocols for like how we store it um so yeah I I definitely was trying to be as careful as I could which was an added stress and then on top of that like I knew we had to get so much done but I was also trying to get everybody like at least hit wrap um by the 12 hour mark um so I think we were just under so from the time I arrived to the time that we shot our last last take of the day um was uh like 11 and a half hours because oh my gosh Joshua I did not even know but he had driven straight from Atlanta back to Augusta to shoot with us and then as soon as we wrapped he jumped in his car to drive back to Atlanta I didn't even know that until we, we call rap and he's like, all right, I got to head to Atlanta now. And I'm like, what, what you've been, you've been wielding a boom mic for 11 hours. And now you're just going to turn around and drive like two and a half hours. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you get this energy? Cause (laughs) I don't know. 
I love Josh. Yeah. I, I sorry. There's no other way. To, it feels like sound people are. It feels like they're kind of their own breed. Oh, for sure. I swear, Josh didn't know any, like. It, his time on Simon Says was great. The one thing I learned about him was he's fantastic. And then it came to us working on Kenneth Perkins' film, Lux. Yes. And then I was like, Josh, how do you know so much about music and instruments as you do? He plays the violin. He plays the guitar. Like, that yeah. guy is so talented. He knows how to fly fish. Yes. It's, it's like... And but, like whenever, oh my gosh, my favorite, my favorite moment was, um, so for the viewers, um, listening, uh, gosh, was it July? Uh, Cody and I had the opportunity to act together. Yeah, we did. Um, in a lovely short film called Lux, directed by Kenneth Perkins, um, who obviously, uh, helped us out and let us use his house for Simon Says. Love Kenny, uh, brilliant filmmaker and writer. Um, but yeah, we got the opportunity to act together, which was a lot of fun. Um, we actually, the shoot itself was an all-nighter. Yep. So that, that was my first all-nighter. Uh, it was an experience, let me tell you. But I remember there was this one moment where, um, Kenneth Perkins and his DP, Nick Laws, went off to set up, um, outside a new shot. And we were all just, like, sat around waiting and Joshua pulls out a pack of Uno cards. <laughs> I'm like, this man is prepared. This is not his first rodeo. <laughs> oh gosh, that was so much fun. Um, but yeah, Simon says, man, that that was something else. And um, at the time, you know, obviously, like I said, like 2022, I'm like, I I need productions. I need experience. I need to network. I was raring to go, but. You know, they always say, like, be careful what you wish for, because 2023 was the busiest year I have ever been through. Like, my head is still spinning over everything that happened to me in 2023. So here I am getting ready to shoot uh, Left One Alive, which at the time I thought I was going to be a B-cam operator. Uh, little did I know that David was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just going to sit back. I'm not going to shoot the movie myself so you are now a cam operator you're shooting the entire movie <laughs> but uh I did not know that at the time um but I I I guess was smart to shoot Simon Says uh as practice because I definitely learned a lot about cinematography and then literally freaking two weeks later we go into a 20-day production uh for Left One Alive and I mean, we're out in the middle of the woods, we're filming in houses, we're filming downtown Augusta. Oh my gosh. Um, that was such a wild experience. And I think for me, it was a big moment because um, to challenge myself as a cinematographer, because uh, like up until that point, I had been focusing on promoting myself as a freelance video editor. But like I said, like I have been in love with cameras since I was like 10 years old. I mean, I remember being four and I'm like, wait, you guys used to have a camera? Where's the camera? We need a camera. Like, I, I just, I don't know. I've always, ever since I was a little kid, had a fascination with a camera. Like I have to have a camera with me at all times. Um, so as much as I tried to step away and find a niche, find one thing that I wanted to focus on, that experience on Left One Alive pulled me right back into my love for cameras. And I was like, I get such a thrill from being on set, planning out shots, working with the grips and the gaffer who are setting up the lighting. It's, it's so exciting. It's, man. And as an actor, um, and Cody, like you worked with uh, co-directing. I don't know if you've shot anything, uh, worked behind the camera, but I know as an actor, the experience of being an actor versus being a crew member is very different. It's like, as an actor, you roll up the set and it's exhausting work, but there's a lot of sitting around. Yeah. And once you get put in your place, you have kind of this 
world of crew that are constantly circulating around you, rushing around. And as an actor, you're in your own bubble of like, I got to remember my lines. I got to get my costume, my makeup. I got to, you know, get in character. I got to create a connection with my scene partners. And it's like two different worlds. And when you're acting, you don't really, you're, you're, you're purposely not focusing on what's going on around you because you're trying to stay in the moment. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up because yeah. I know for me, in my yeah. situation, it's, it is very much so not the commonplace thing when it comes to actors because mm-hmm. growing up in the state of Maine, there's no industry up there. Yeah. So even if you're an actor, you're like 20 other things. So almost every production I I have been a part of, if I was not an actor, I was part of crew or I was some combination thereof. So you have the same experience that I've had too of working both sides. Yeah, and for me, that's why it's like, no matter how long the day is, it's always just making sure that people are okay. Even if you are just an actor, because. Look, do I love being an actor? Yes, but the one thing I have realized is I'm not oh, I'm not 100% an actor. I will always be a crew head for it's because for me it's like actors are great, crew people are really where it's at. Like right. crew people are always just the I mean, yes, look, so much respect <laughs> to everybody who works on crew for sure. because yeah. it's nuts, but it the sound people, the grips, the directors, the ADs like Every single person who is on crew, I will say I have a very special place in my heart for hair and makeup people. Shout out right. to Nicolette Amani. Yes. Literally every time I'm in a hair and makeup chair, it feels like I don't know why, but my entire life story comes out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah. just so and that's another that's another reason why I have so much respect for you is because you're also one of those people who there, there's one specific thing that you are very, very confident in, but you have a general based knowledge about everything. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Like if you can get experience doing other things other than what your focus is, it actually uh, benefits you in the long run. So I definitely encourage people to like, you know, even uh, work as a PA or a second EC and just get experience in different aspects. But definitely what I learned from Left One Alive, having had more acting experience and then obviously doing full service production, but that was like usually me kind of like one man show filming stuff. Um, But actually working in a full size like film crew situation, realizing that the crew has to show up a good hour before, at, at least, before the talent gets there. And then after we call rap and the talent leaves, we have to stay and break things down. And it's often <laughs> two in the morning and it's freezing cold and there's bugs and it's raining and I just want to go home and go to sleep. <laughs> so I have now a newfound mad respect for grips and crew and just the amount of work that they put in behind the scenes. And it's not as glamorous as the acting role where, you know, there's a lot of red carpet experiences and that kind of fun glitz and glam, which acting is a lot harder than people think as well. But Mm -hmm. um, just working all sides, I have a newfound appreciation for how the entire machine of filmmaking uh, works. It's like every gear and piece of the machine has to work perfectly. So every single role, even PA, second AC, like the the smallest role in the department is so important. Because if you don't have somebody to go get coffee for everyone, you know, like it's just, it's it's like a domino effect. Yeah. And there's always, there is the phrase when it comes to film sets is that, You better be prepared because something is always going to go wrong on your film sets. But the thing is, when people are locked in, especially if you have such a profound trust for everybody you are working with, absolute miracles happen on set. Like, I, I don't know if I've talked with you about... Number one, how long the, the, uh, for every, I've talked about suitcases on here, but how long the suitcases script was and what we shot both days. We got together and we shot, we shot 13 pages both days and we're able to send everybody home before 9 PM both days Wow! because I, I mean, once again, we had, we had 
Gary Nipple, who we both know. I love Gary. Absolutely love him. Nicolette Almani was yes. our hair and makeup. And Josh was our sound guy. Yes. And it Dream was, team. And with them, it was great. But all of our actors were also just, they were all on point, mm-hmm. which I, I felt very, very lucky because because of that group that we had from cast to crew, we were able to get through everything. And if we took out, I would say if we took out lunch and sort of the hour prep before each day, we probably were able to, to our second day was longer. It was, it was about 12 hours because we were shooting a party. <laughs> and let me tell you, if you guys are going to be shooting a party, just be careful. Uh, but our first day, uh, we were probably, we were able to wrap in about five hours, just wow. like without lunch or the, uh, like if we don't include lunch or our hour prep time, because once yeah. again, everybody was just so prepared and that's, that's the other thing, which I'm sure you have experienced this being on sets where everybody comes in with the best of intentions, but it's very clear that there are people who are not prepared for what they're getting into, whether yeah. it's they're very new to like acting or being on crew or, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. But it's very interesting. Um, uh, so working with, uh, David X, I've learned a lot about filmmaking because he, he has a goal, um, his goal that he started, gosh, seven years ago. And that is to make a feature film every single year, which as, as filmmakers, we both know is extremely ambitious. Yeah. Um, but basically his philosophy is, you know, he wants to make films. And so why not use that as a way to learn, actually get out there, make something, do it. Yeah. And it all started, um, he's a writer and he was trying to, you know, get recognition for his scripts, get producers, get directors who wanted to create his scripts. But as every screenwriter knows, it's very hard to break into the industry. Yeah. Um, and often people will actually uh, like purchase the scripts for a period of time, but then they just don't get made. Yep. And they lose, um, lose the rights to those scripts. And so it's very frustrating for writers often, like very talented writers to get recognition for their scripts and to actually get them made. And so he finally reached the point where it's like, he wanted to make movies. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to make my own. And he like jumped in there and has been making a movie every single year. And I was very inspired when we started working together. And, uh, (laughs) so, uh, Basically what happened was, um, I thought I was just gonna make one feature film uh, last year. (laughs) And oh my gosh, when you get two people like David and I together who are so ambitious and so driven and love filmmaking and just the art of storytelling so freaking much, uh, that's kind of dangerous because we didn't just make one film, Left One Alive, like we had intended to. We ended up making three feature projects last year, uh, which are all in post-production right now. Uh, Oh my gosh. So basically, uh, while it was right before we filmed Simon Says, uh, he comes to me and he's like, okay. So he shot in a very awesome, introspective drama slash fantasy Western very, very genre bending film that I love so much called Acorn. Um, it's starring some of my favorite people, Kaylin Sams Davis, Morgan Shaley Renew. Um, and it is just, is such a special movie to me because of the message that it contains. Um, but they shot that in uh, 2022. And um, so David was getting it ready for distribution. And he started talking to me about how he wanted to create something that would showcase the behind the scenes experience. What is it like when you have $50,000 to make a feature film, which is an incredibly small budget for a film? It sounds like a lot, it sounds like a lot of money, but that is an incredibly small budget for a feature film. But what happens when you only have 50,000 and you have a band of film loving creatives who wanna work with you and make something special and you take this band into the backwoods of Georgia <laughs> and try to shoot a super ambitious film project. Like 
what happens? And oh my gosh, I mean, like as I as I have experienced going through several feature film experiences, just the things that happen on set, just the chaos and the unexpected, you know, gear breaking, you lose locations last minute. It is the amount of stress you have to go through as a feature film director is just incredible. And he wanted to show the amount of work and effort and sweat and tears that they poured into these projects. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, you know, going back to, I love documentary filmmaking so much. And I was like, I have been wanting to make a feature length documentary for so long, but I've not had a topic, a subject that I felt that passionately about. And I was like, I'm a filmmaker. I know why I love making films. I know why I want to put in hours and hours of work and effort. And I mean, I I have like $14,000 invested in camera gear. Like people, that, that's what people don't understand. Just, just to have a, 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 a film kit, a camera kit and lights, just enough to have a career and be able to like shoot stuff. Oh my gosh, the amount of money you have to invest into computers, laptops, software for editing. Oh my gosh. I was like, I want to make a documentary that shows what goes into making a feature film, what goes into getting together a group of people and actually creating art and I, I know a lot of friends who just don't understand the, the process of filmmaking. And yeah. to me, it's so fascinating. So we talked about this project. And I was like, okay, I will direct this project. I am going to interview the cast and crew of Acorn, some of who we work with in Left One Alive. And so I was going to be working with them in uh, the month of May. And I am going to interview them and I am going to create a documentary. And I'm so excited. And then David goes, okay, yeah, but plot twist. Uh, the distributor is going to need the entire film completely edited by August 1st. And we were at the end of April. And if you know anything about filmmaking, uh, people can spend a year or more on a documentary. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, the month of May, we were filming Left One Alive. So that gave me two months afterwards to complete this project. And if you know anything about me, I'm like, you know, I love a challenge. <laughs> so while we were filming Left One Alive, I was also beginning to shoot interviews um, for the documentary that would come to be called Create or Die. And the title for me, so the movie Acorn is about a filmmaker who finds out she's been diagnosed with cancer. And she only has the time left to make one more movie. And so she decides to pour herself into a passion project of hers. And it's the adventures of what happens when obviously chaos ensues, as it is often happens on a film set. And it's basically the story of what happens um, and the story that she creates. And it's a very special film and an ode to filmmakers. And I wanted to capture that message in the documentary, Create or Die, but the true life story behind Acorn. Um, it was such a special experience to interview actors, crew people, uh, David, the director and the writer, and to talk to them about their passion, their drive for creating, for, for pursuing their dreams and their art. And it was so cool because it's like, as I was interviewing them, they were saying the exact same things that I feel back to me. The reasons that I pursue film, the reasons that I give up my free time and pour myself into what I do, those are the exact same reasons they do what they do. And it was just, it was so just surreal and awesome to just be sitting there talking to people about their, their inner drive and their love of creativity, why they can't let it go. And I think... We've all been in a place as creatives where chasing our dreams is so difficult. Um, I, I know for myself, I've been at a point where, you know, I considered giving it up. And Creator Die is about why we don't. 
I think we've talked about this before, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe once or twice. <laughs> yeah, about like, why we just got to do it? I yeah. mean, people might not understand what, why do you have to do this thing? Why do you have to act? Why do you have to make movies? You yeah, know? no, when you get to a point of, because let's call it what it is, it's obsessive. Like, we are obsessed with what we do yes. because we love it so much. In the best possible way. And and just like the regular, everyday, common folk, uh, it, it's, there is a bit of a separation there. And mm-hmm. part of me blames that on society because even though the arts are kind of cool now, mm-hmm. it's not like 100% super supported. Like, Especially in the school systems, too. Like, I was lucky to be a part of a high school youth wing program, theater program. But there's a lot of schools that just don't get, like, as much funding for theater as they do for sports or yeah. science. Yeah, no, there was there was a school that was uh, adjacent to the school, the high school that I went to. Basically, the town that I grew up in, there are three, there are three towns, Bath, Brunswick, and Thompson. I grew up in Bath. The school in Topsom, Maine, uh, they were running low on funding and they had both an arts program and a sports program. They completely cut the arts program so they could keep their sports program going. I believe their arts program is back, thank goodness, but that's what they elected to do because, once again, sports as a whole is still looked at as more of a positive thing than pursuing the arts is. And... Nobody really understands it much like creative and artists do, just Mm -hmm. how much uh, of a sacrifice going into this is. We've talked about this a lot. The Mm -hmm. fact is, especially with people like you and David, people like myself, our goals are much bigger than than like just trying to do this regularly, routinely as a hobby. And trying to get into an industry like this that means a good portion of the time you're going to be sacrificing weekends. You're sacrificing social time. Sometimes you're going to be sacrificing holidays. Mm-hmm. It's And you're sacrificing a whole lot of money. For it's, sure. It's like that's just on what you were talking about before in terms of $14,000 worth of camera gear. That is just like baseline. And that's, exactly. that's not talking about people who want to be actors as well as cinematographers or people who want to be writers or or everything Mm -hmm. else the amount that we have to sacrifice in terms of our our finances so we can stay in a pursuit of this it's a lot yeah because like i love acting but like i found i've had to you know sideline that a little bit in pursuit of editing and uh camera department work because you know I just don't have the money to also put into acting classes. Yeah. You know, there's like so much I want to do and learn and classes I want to take. But, you know, it's very much like I have to choose. Yeah. Because it it costs so much. I mean, like people um, outside of the acting uh, community maybe don't understand that like you can pay $400, $500 for a series of classes and more headshots. Oh my gosh. Headshots are so expensive. Like you can easily put 300, $400, $500 into your headshots. And then, you know, you get an agent and they're like, Oh yeah, we're going to need you to go get some extra headshots. And yeah. it's like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. And this is for anybody who has been listening to this podcast for any length of time. You know that this podcast is about mental health and I'm going to be transitioning this into we are still talking about the whole mental health of this whole thing, but it is going to be a bit of a different perspective because I briefly touched on this with my friend Lexi. She's also a filmmaker and she's a director and a writer and a producer. And we briefly touch on like the financial burden and the cost of actually running your own business as an artist and a creative. And I, I, I feel very fortunate to continue this conversation with you because we talked about this and we have a lot of the same opinions on this. Not only is it incredibly expensive and not only do you have to do it year after year after year, but certainly when you decide to go into a more professional route, it can be sort of seen by a negative thing by A few people. I know when I, I'm going to be, for any of you listening, I'm actually transitioning out of Georgia, at least for a little bit, to go back home. Partly for family. Part of it is because there's there's stuff going on in terms of planning and projects that I'm not going to discuss here. But 
when I go back there, I know there's going to be a lot of people who are very upset with me that I'm not going to be doing unpaid work anymore. Mm. It's like, and that's, it's just a whole thing. And once again, Maine is a state that is not abundant with the industry. The closest thing we have adjacent is, is Massachusetts and Boston. And that is growing in terms of the industry, but Maine is still one of those. It's almost like it's a pay by favor sort of thing. Yeah. And that's something I, I mentioned earlier, like when you're first getting started in the industry, um, to gain experience and to gain credits on your resume, IMDb credits. Um, we've all been in that place where you do volunteer work. Yeah. Um, you take whatever you can get and you use that. And I've done that. You use that to build your network. You build your connections. And your resume. And, yeah. And like I said earlier, like my connection with David was because I was doing an unpaid background gig and I met somebody who invited me to a screening. So... I, you know, I very much stress the importance of networking and getting out there and meeting people, even if it involves, you know, spending a weekend on a film set for free yeah, um, to help out and get that experience. But the thing is, there is a point where you have to transition and it's really hard because I think, um, once you've done some free work for some people, like they can, they can start to expect free work from you. Yeah. And also there's, there's a very careful boundary. It's hard to navigate as you're building your career, um, with friends. And I have found this, um, as a freelancer, um, it's easy to want to do unpaid work for friends as a gift to help them out. And, you know, I think it's very important within the industry to that we be, we all support each other. And like we discussed before, like filmmaking is very expensive. Yeah. And so sometimes people, you know, like what Simon says, I did not have the money to pay every single person. I tried to do the best I could. Um, but there is a point where you have to navigate like, I don't want to exploit people and expect them to work for free. Yeah. So, so how do you navigate that? And that's the difficult thing, especially too, because um, when you have friends that are outside of the film industry, they might not understand how much time, effort, classes, gear, you have to pour into your business. And building to, yourself up too. Exactly. And so... Um, you know, you want to help people out, you know, but you also have to learn to, to be tough, to be, uh, confident within yourself and be able to, to market yourself for what you're actually worth. Yeah. And there, you know, um, I think every freelancer has gone through a position where somebody's tried to pressure them into working for less money than they're actually feel like they are worth. And you gotta, you gotta develop, you know, a strength, an internal strength, and and be able to, you know, have contracts, be willing to take legal action if somebody's not going to pay you. I mean, it's hard. It's tough. Um, you got to protect yourself. Yeah. Being a freelancer, being a creative, building a business um, on your own is difficult. And it's nice uh, for uh, actors and crew who are members of unions that can protect them. Um, but even with that, you know, we had the, the actors and writers strikes where, you know, they had to stand up and defend their own rights. And that's tough. A lot of people were out of work. A lot of people, you know, went through some tough times. Um, the industry was shut down for a while, but you know, you, you gotta, you gotta defend yourself. And that's something I've had to learn in this industry that I'm still learning. You gotta value your time you have to value your skills and yeah it's a, it's a hard line to navigate yeah know? and for for me i do think once again there are exceptions to every rule for me my rule when it comes to doing unpaid work it, it's sort of uh, like when i first got down here like this this area is completely new to me the state of georgia is completely new to me and so when i got onto your film set i was like I really don't care that I'm not getting paid here mm-hmm. because number one, I saw how passionate you were about trying to get this off of the ground. And the fact that this was your first film, I remember what that was like for me, but getting onto your sets, I'm so glad that I took it because there are so many, like I said, Joshua Z Timmerman had never met the guy before. 
we worked on three different film sets together and then he came and worked on my set. It's like that sort of networking is is very, very important. Mm -hmm. But also, like you were saying, at a certain point in Generally speaking, if you work on a particular facet and your skill on a, and a particular skill set, there will be signs that you can you will find out what you're you're worth. Yes. And for me, it's like I know that in the realms of like writing and directing and, and producing, I mean maybe not so much. There have been signs now that what I am worth as an actor. Mm-hmm. And and that took me a long time. And in terms of freelancing, it can be difficult because mm-hmm. The the biggest question I hear every freelancer is, I don't know how much I should be charging for my services. And yeah. then it's like you get a certain point and then someone's willing to pay you more for what you do. And then it's it's just stepping stones. It's a long process. And ultimately, I say it all the time, getting into the film industry or the entertainment industry in any facet to try to make it a career is becoming an entrepreneur. Like for you, sure, you are opening up your own business, and mm-hmm. literally, there could be an entire other episode to talk about this. But <laughs> it's for me, it's the one thing that I, I have thought over and I've mulled over. It's number one for me, one of the big reasons why, in terms of the struggle and in terms of mental health, it can be super, super difficult because number one, 90% of the time, you are by yourself in this industry. For sure. And number two, it's like as you grow and as you know your worth and as things sort of come up, the people who detract from your life, although they may not have looked that way before, you just got to leave them behind. And it's it's mm-hmm. and sometimes that's not a like leave them behind in like a personal sense where they'll still be fr- like you can still be friends with those people. But in, in like a business or industry sense it doesn't feel like there's a connection there anymore in terms of they don't understand what you're trying to do, whether it's monetarily or business wise or artistically. And that, that is a hard lesson I had to learn this past year. Yeah. And I think like working uh, within the indie industry, I've come to realize that people also can have different goals uh, in their artistic endeavors. And I try to be incredibly supportive of everybody, no matter what their goals are. Um, But that is going to inform what gigs I do take and which ones I don't, where some people might be doing it for fun as a hobby. Other people um, might be making films um, for certain reasons or for certain clientele. Um, so, and then others might be more driven to pursue, say, the professional Atlanta market. Um, and so I, I try to respect everybody's goals, but also a lot of us have differing goals within our artistic endeavors. Um, some are more community-based and I love like supporting, uh, the Augusta community, um, but also I'm in a phase where I'm trying to build connections in Greenville, Columbia, Atlanta, and branch out as much as possible. Cause like the thing that's kind of cool is like being in Augusta is it's like right in the center of multiple different hubs of film. So we have Atlanta is our big one. Um, but then there's a lot of other like Charlotte, Greenville, uh, down in Florida, a lot going on. And it's very cool because, like, you know, I am going to have to put in the mileage to get to different film sets, but I'm in a very centralized location, which is kind of cool. Um, But, yeah, like, definitely, like, branching into a new market takes a lot of effort, especially when you're looking at, you know, just going to screenings and meetup groups in those other cities. I might have to put in an hour to three hours worth of driving just to get there. Um, so that is, that is a whole new thing I'm navigating right now is, you know, once you network within your community, which is where you need to start, um, is then branching out to the larger industry in your region. Yeah, I completely agreed. And for anybody who's listening, you want, you want like a number one rule for how you can, how you can just be in people's minds and also just just be able to have the chance to keep working. Just, first of all, don't let anybody step on you. But number two, just be a genuinely good person. Like it's something that shouldn't be overstated. And I wish you, it's something that is mentioned in regards to an artistic industry. 
But for me, I don't know. Sometimes it feels like that that rule seems really hard to come by. Uh, so yeah, just be a kind and genuinely good person and don't let people step on you. And you yeah. will be absolutely fine. And I think this kind of like segues into kind of the other thing of your podcast. And that is talking about uh, the mental health and emotional side of creating as an artist. Oh, yeah. And um, knowing knowing your self-worth and um, having confidence in who you are, I think is very important. Um, you want to walk a fine line of like not having too much of an ego and not being yep. willing to accept advice. But I think something I've really learned, I'm definitely like the people pleaser type um, personality wise. Um, and in the creative industry, like you're never going to please everyone, but th- there is a fine line of knowing what advice to take because I've been on film sets where like one film set where somebody's telling me you didn't get enough wide shots. And then I'm on another film set where they're like, you didn't get enough close-ups. And I realize like everybody's got like their own concept of what's right and what's wrong. Like even when you look at Hollywood filmmakers, like um, David and I love to on our film sets uh, really like push the boundaries of cinematography. So we've done some like really creative things like with oneers and long takes and, you know, uh, obviously then you get the opinions of like, oh, well, you're not shooting standard coverage. Um, but I mean, I, I've seen other directors like Spielberg, PTA, like ha- have done some like absolutely incredible oneers, long takes that are just absolutely gorgeous, usually like with a steady cam or a gimbal. But shots like that are so exciting. But it kind of it shows you like within filmmaking there are your basic rules that we all need to learn at the ground floor. Yeah. Um, but once you get to a certain level, it's okay to break those rules. It's okay to get out there and start experimenting. But once you experiment, start experimenting with your filmmaking and storytelling, um, everybody's going to have an opinion. So it's that <laughs> fine line of being like learning which opinions to listen to and which ones to maybe respectfully disregard. And especially when you're just getting started in the industry, um, that can be hard to navigate, especially coming from a lot of like more senior people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's been an interesting challenge for me. Uh, yeah, I know I've been very grateful to have a lot of really good people in my life, uh, over the last year who have, really mentored me and offered me really good, solid advice. Um, and it is important as a creative to have mentor figures in your life who are more yeah. experienced than you. Because like I said, when you start getting a lot of different opinions, it's good to have like a grounding force who's able to tell you, okay, well, this is, these are, you know, the reactions you need to listen to. And these are the ones that you maybe don't, but man, art is so subjective. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're trying to create <clears throat> artwork that, that people want to buy and watch and rewatch and tell their friends about, but you also want it to have authorship and be something unique and creative that reflects who you are. <laughs> it's so complex uh, navigating all of those little details, but and then also having the confidence to like walk in a room and be like, hi, I'm Sarah, I'm a director, I'm, you know, a camera operator, a video editor, here's my work. One set, and action. <laughs> I make movies because I can't not. I make movies because if I didn't, what would I be? A fraction of myself. Hey, I'm David Axe. I wrote and directed this thing you're about to see called Acorn. Mostly, it's about making a movie and the kinds of people who make movies, why they do it, and whether they care, whether they fail. Acorn is about a young female filmmaker. She unfortunately gets a cancer diagnosis and she decides that she's gonna use those six months and make one last movie. Because we are drunken fools, I just said, thought, figured, why not write Die Standing Up too? How hard could it be? We'll just shoot them both. So we did. In three weeks, we made two movies. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Ruination, here it comes. Oh my God. 
lot of people have a, uh, an idealized version of what making a movie is. I thought I had access to a new Old West set. By the time we got back to starting production, Old Warrington had been shut down and a guy got shot. David was in a great dilemma. It was insane. And I'd come emerging out of our hair and makeup tent with a sweaty wad of penciled in script pages. I just got so in my head. The horse blinders that I've had on just completely went away. I called my family that night and I was like, I've spent all this time doing this and I'm gonna go home and quit and just leave this all behind. That was a really hard thing for me to think about because it's all I've ever really wanted to do, perform and create. Most micro-budget indie productions fail. They collapse, people quit. I will always finish my movies even if they're terrible. Nobody goes into independent filmmaking trying to, to be rich. When you create something for the sheer joy of creating, that's art. It makes life worth living having a creative outlet. I am absurdly, ludicrously dedicated to the bad idea of starting nowhere and making a good movie.